You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. We've been doing this series this fall on Genesis 1, 26 and 27, is God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we've been having a series of reflections about what it means to be created in the image of God that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. And Somebody asked last week, what does intrinsic mean? I thought that was a great question because I think I was making an assumption that we all knew what that was. So let's talk about that for a second. Is our intrinsic worth is something that we have just simply because we exist. Now our culture has a different value system, sort of more of a functional, that your worth comes from your function. Or what you're able to do. How many likes you get on Facebook? How many likes you get on Facebook? That could be be your criteria. Um, You know, are you a productive member of society? Do you have the ability to have a quality life? What do you contribute to others? Um, And so this is really going to be a big uh, part of the conversation next week when we talk about the disabled. Because... A lot of, if if someone doesn't have intrinsic value just because they exist, then you get into these conversations of, well, what is their worth? Are they really a valued and contributing member of society if they can't speak? Are they a drain on society because of their disability, right? So when we as a Christian culture... Uh, think about the value of another human being. Our, the historic Christian position is that we have intrinsic value simply because we're created in the image of God. And this is our culture as Christians. And so as we are acting as agents of transformation within our, the American culture, we want to cultivate a distinctly Christian culture within our own church and then consider our impact on our wider culture. So we're going to watch a little video right now that's sort of a synopsis of this whole series we've been doing in a nutshell. It's like six minutes of the last four months. And it's from uh, the Bible Project. If you haven't yet discovered the Bible Project, uh, fix that. (laughs) Um, Especially if you have kids. They're great short uh, vi- visual videos of key biblical ideas. Uh, I don't know who they're funded by, but they do a great job and very solid information that they give you. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would say like probably like maybe 10 ish and up. But the, they have like a summary of the book of the Bible. So almost any book of the Bible and you want to just kind of know what the big picture is. They've got videos on the big picture of the entire Bible and big, big, uh, big pictures of key themes in the Bible. So we're going to watch the one that they've done on justice, which is really related to the conversation that we've been having. Yeah. Peb's brother. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. Zach has been posting them on uh, our Get Fit campaign. So the Bible Project. All right, so we're going to watch this one about justice right now. If you were a praying mantis, 
it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end. Okay, can you pause it for a second? So this is so far what he's covered here is what we've been calling in our class, the first movement was creation, that we were all created in the image of God, right? But then what happened? The fall. Yeah, that's the next big movement of scripture. So then we push others down in our sinfulness, right? Especially the vulnerable, the weak, the people who are different than us. We say that they're less value. They have less value. So now he's going to start moving into redemption. That with Abraham, God begins to build a people that are supposed to live out the values of creation, but within the context of the sinful, the sinful fallen world. Okay, go ahead. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? 
Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So then we added an additional step here that they didn't go into, and that is glorification. That when we are in the glorified state in heaven, we will have perfect justice. That Jesus will make everything right, and he will put things aright that have been, that have been wronged. But right now we are acting as God's redeemed people in the earth, and that we are supposed to embody those ideals of loving our neighbor isn't just a nice idea. It's, it's, a, it's a proclamation of, of God has forgiven me and given me a fresh start as a sinner. And now how do I begin to bring that into the world? I didn't deserve it. We have a lot of deserving mentality a lot of the times. People don't deserve our kindness. Well, isn't that sort of the point? <laughs> I didn't deserve God's kindness. I don't know about you. Maybe the perfect people in here, you know, that, oh, wait. None of us deserved God's kindness. But it says it's the kindness of God in Romans 4 that brings us to repentance. 
And sometimes I think that we forget that, that it's God's kindness that, that brought us to repentance and how us being kind to others can help be a pathway to, to them finding that restoration and forgiveness. So anyways, do you like that video? Is that sort of like a helpful sort of review of where we're at and what we've been trying to accomplish here? So let's wrap things up about uh, pro-life issues. Now, one thing you're going to run into when you talk to people in your Oikos about pro-life issues is, and you might have heard some of statements similar to this, is that pro-life people are hypocrites. Um, shouldn't, if you're really pro-life, shouldn't pro-life people also oppose the death penalty? Have you ever heard that one? Yeah. Uh, shouldn't pro-life people today uh, lobby for restrictions about gun ownership? Shouldn't pro-life people oppose war? Shouldn't pro-life people be for universal health care for everyone? You ever heard these sorts of sentiments, right? That the, the pro-life position is, is really a hypocritical position. Really, all you're saying is that you're just for the unborn. You're just a pro-fetus position. You know, that you're not really pro-life. That that, because there's all, then you have all of these exceptions, right? And I think that we have to be careful in how we say this, because the, there are some underlying concerns that we all share. Their underlying concerns of people who point out this hypocrisy problem usually are something like this. Conservative pro-life advocacy is really just a religious hypocritical sham. They're really concerned that we're just trying to advocate for, for, for religion, right? And uh, conservatives are single-issue fanatics. They're just pro-birth or pro-fetus. They don't care about anything that happens after that. They don't care about the woman. We've touched on that a few times in class. So these are sort of the narrative behind the hypocrisy objections a lot of times. So it's important to just, just be aware of that. And I think it's good to clarify our position that we are for basically what we're saying with the pro-life def uh, position is that we're for defending the defenseless. That's what we're saying, that it's not okay to kill innocent people and that the unborn are people. And it, that's, that's really what we're saying with the pro-life name is that we are trying to defend the defenseless, which is a very biblical idea that we ought to be a voice for people who cannot be a voice for themselves. And I think that we can all agree that we're all for safe communities. But there's an assumption behind these, these uh, objections. For example, uh, the pro-life uh, pro people shouldn't oppose the death penalty. Well, I think we can all agree that we're all for safe communities. Like safe communities, that's like, that's like a good idea, right? Let's make the world a safer place. We can all agree on that. But the question is, is is which solutions are best to get to safer communities. So in that sense, we are pro-life. We want to preserve the lives, of, the lives of the innocent in our communities. The question is, is how do we do that? That's where the political debate comes in. But I think that, that there's this trap that many times is set that says, well, you can't really be pro-life because you're not for the death penalty. Well, we, we covered that in a previous lesson about 
about capital punishment and the biblical foundation for that. Uh, I'm all for punishing the guilty, but the debate is, is what is, a ju- what is a just punishment when it comes to our punishments? Now, we have to make sure that punishments are equally applied. I think it's a legitimate question to ask, are there certain people in our culture that seem to get more punishments than other people? because of their ethnicity? I think that's a legitimate question to ask. But it's a hard issue, and these are debatable problems. We can't act like there's just one solution to all of these things. But this is part of the debate. But then this is also part of the trap where they kind of set it up. If you're, well, if you're pro-life and it doesn't look exactly like this, then you're just a hypocrite. Well, there might be a, that might be a more complicated conversation than what you're, what you're indicating there. Yes, the poor should have access to health care. I think it's a very interesting and provocative question of is health care for the rich better than health care for the poor? I think that's a legitimate question about justice. But the solution is not necessarily universal government-sponsored health care. That's the debatable question is how do we get to this end goal of making healthcare equally accessible for the rich and the poor so that there's equal access. But this is where the history of Christian charity is, is that, you know, when Christians have seen a vacuum in a certain area, an opening, that's where Christians ought to go in. So if if we're concerned that the poor are not getting adequate healthcare access, then maybe we need to start having a conversation within our churches as evangelicals of people who are trained in medicine and dentistry. How can we put together low or free health care clinics so that people can have better access to health care? Maybe we don't need to wait for the government to do something. Are you with me? And this is what I'm trying to forge in this class of like something beyond politics. So yeah, Jenny. Going to another country, I have a, I have a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon, and he'll go over on uh, the mission, the mercy ship, yeah. and do surgeries and fix uh, disabled children who are adults that can't walk properly because of malnutrition and yeah. deformities. But if you try to do something over here, you're going to get sued for malpractice, and, and people are going to shut your business down, and so people are just frozen in what not to do, so you... Yeah, and so, so it's maybe kind of a scary thing. You want it to is. dentistry, so let's just put a, make a line outside your dentist's office and have all these people come in, but then you're going to get shut down for blah, 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 blah. But maybe we need to be some advocates for different laws. Maybe that's where we start, is we start advocating for how do we change the laws so that we can step into these places to make health care more accessible. Like what I'm trying to get at is we need to have some other conversations that are motivated by understanding our identity as Christian culture. And not just think, well, well, there, then there's the politics and conservative and liberal. And I'm trying to like say, okay, that's interesting, but that's not necessarily going to get us to what has historically been true about Christians. The idea of philanthropy among Christians 100, 125 years ago is much different than it is today. And uh, there, was, there was more of a culture of the super rich kind of investing in the poor and figuring out what that could look like and how they could step into that. But we have a lot of very onerous laws now. We, have a, we live in a very litigious culture. But maybe we need to have a conversation about what sort of advocacy we need to do to change our laws. I just, I'm not saying I'm an expert on these things. I'm just trying to pro- 
provide some thought-provoking questions that maybe we need to start asking some different questions. So there's ways of being pro-life without being a hypocrite. All right, the question we had last week was, uh, does birth control cause abortion? That was a fun question. So (laughs) since I am not a fifth-grade health teacher, uh, (laughs) I tried to put this in a little bit more straightforward way. So the, the, what I was trying to say last week was that there's kind of two different classes of birth control issues or methods. Uh, there's what are called barrier methods and hormonal methods. And uh, hormonal methods are what was specifically brought up last week that either prevent ovulation or they restrict implantation of the embryo. So the embryo can form, but then when it's trying to be implanted in the uterus, the, the hormonal birth control method prevents that implantation, and that's how it prevents pregnancy. However, whether or not a hormonal birth control method can cause an abortion is the subject of much debate. If you try to talk to your primary care doctor about this, that's an interesting conversation. Because when they, I actually have talked to a couple of my GPs about this, and, and they, they always want to put you on the pill. And you're like, well, I don't really, that's kind of, I'm cautious about that because I'm, I'm concerned about um, the prevention of implantation and what that does to the embryo, and I have certain ethical problems with that. And then they always say, well, that's not really an abortion. And so I tried to do some research on this this week of like, why do doctors always tell me that? You know, and I read a really good article that summarized that. So here's kind of a a summary of what I learned. Um, Some would say, and this is my position, is that birth control pills cause abortions because it prevents implantation of the embryo. The embryo has already been formed. Um, Others say that pregnancy begins at the point of implantation. So that's why they tell you it's not an abortion because it hasn't actually implanted yet and you're not technically pregnant until it implants. Whether or not birth control causes an abortion technically all depends on what your definition when you think pregnancy begins. If you don't think pregnancy begins until it's, the embryo is implanted, then no, birth control pills do not cause an abortion. If, however, you believe that the embryo is formed and at that point you're pregnant, because there's some period of time between that that fertilization event and the the implantation. So that's why they, they give you this answer when you go to the doctor about whether or not it causes an abortion. It all depends on when you say you're pregnant. When does pregnancy technically begin? So the question then is, how pro-life do we want to be? Because we have a situation where we live in an amazing age of emerging technologies that can help infertile couples to conceive um, when natural methods are not working for them. Um, Emerging uh, emerging technologies can help infertile couples uh, conceive that they've, created several ethical dilemmas related to the pro-life question is what do you do with all of these embryos? Because here's what happens is if you're an infertile couple, you can go to a special doctor and they'll harvest 
some number of eggs and they will fertilize them, right? And then they will tell, ask you, how many do you want to implant? Now, some of those won't take, some might take, all right? So the, the thought um, among some people, if you, if you don't look at the, count the ethical dilemmas, you're like, well, let's implant eight. Hopefully two will take, you might get twins, okay? Uh, some won't take. But the question is, is, well, what if six of them take? You're going to be very busy. You're not going to sleep, you know? So this, this, pre, this presents a certain dilemma. And, and sometimes they will, they will actually uh, recommend selective abortions to pare down the number of embryos so that it's a more manageable number. I think something that is consistent with a Christian ethic in this situation is to only harvest the ones that you plan to actually implant and give life to. So if you feel like you're only up for twins, then you should only harvest two eggs because you don't know what is going to happen there. If you're, if you're up for quads and, you know, you've seen what the Cherubogas live, you know, you're up for quads, you're up for that. Then, then harvest four and fertilize four, implant four, and see what happens. But I think using these technologies can be helpful to Christians if you do it in a careful way. How many of you, like, you've heard a sermon about how to ethically handle your IVF embryos from the pulpit? Like, that's a conversation we're all real up to speed on, right? Yeah. Um, we don't talk about these issues. You know, last week, my dear mother, we were at lunch and she says, I've never heard, I've been in church my whole life. I've never heard anybody talk about these issues you're talking about in, in your class. And I said, "Ooh, that's sad. <laughs> and I, I think that because this is a very, this is the real world of how theology applies to real world situations. And so we want to have an ethic that's consistent with the culture, the pro-life culture that we're trying to build within the church. And so I'm not against technology. I think we just have to be careful in how we utilize the technology in a way that is consistent with who we are as God's people. And um, so we're going to watch a short video here. Uh, my mother brought this headline from the, the Tribune last week uh, from an adopted embryo to a Biola student. And uh, she... Uh, is uh, what's called snowflake adoption, where these, these embryos that get fertilized and then frozen for couples to use, and then the couple never comes back to, to retrieve the embryo, they can be adopted. And so it, some Christians have, have chosen to adopt these embryos and give them life. And, and so it's a type of adoption called snowflake adoption. So this is, I think, a very interesting and unique Christian response to this medical technology and how to, it is consistent with the pro-life value. So we're going to watch a short video about this gal. Just so happened, I already had this clip in the queue, and, and then my mom had this headline, and I said, oh, yeah, that's the same story I'm going to play in class. So uh, here's the By the way, this is video. PBS. It's a secular clip. Good evening. I'm Val Zavala. They call them maybe babies, nearly a million frozen embryos stored in labs across the country. And many of them will not be used by the couples who created them. So what will happen to these embryos? 
Welcome to the newest controversy surrounding the creation of human life. Parents' Day at Biola University, and John and Marlene Strege have come to visit their freshman year daughter. It's a classic family picture. The girl has her mother's smile and her father's writing talent. But she's not biologically related to either of her parents. The Stregays created a family through Adoption's New Frontier, and this is where it all began. Meet Snowflake number one. I didn't really start the ripple effect. I'm just the product of the ripple. Hannah, as she's actually called, was born of an embryo frozen two decades ago from another family's in vitro fertilization treatment, or IVF. We were the first family to uh, use this model of adopting embryos. Uh, it's been a total positive experience. It's a story they've had to explain many times over the years. Marlene had heard that IVF couples often have leftover frozen embryos in storage after they were done having children. Her fertility doctor even told her he'd give her some from another family. But this is where Marlene's ethical radar went on high alert. I've got embryos, just pick one, you know, and he handed me a list. And I looked at him and I go, this is how you pick your car based on options. I go, this is not how we're growing our family. We would have to eventually explain this someday to a child. The Stregays approached Nightlight Christian Adoption Center in Santa Ana and developed a plan to openly adopt an embryo. They wanted another couple to choose them and go through a home study. They wanted any children born to them to know their biological family. We just wanted a baby and God had bigger plans for us and so that's sort of, we just went along as it unfolded. I was so elated to be pregnant and to actually say those words, I'm pregnant, you know. Um, but then I realized that I was actually saving a life at the same time, you know, that it wasn't just about me. <laughs> it was actually, it was really about, about my daughter and that um, she was be being able to fulfill her gift of life. Their determination gave birth to the Snowflake Embryo Adoption Program now in dozens of adoption centers across the country. Our program is mainly attracting as women who are able to carry but not conceive. Daniel Nurbus runs all the adoption programs at Nightlight, a pro-life agency where handprints of adopted American and international children link with those adopted as embryos, like Hannah. While the number of so-called snowflake children has grown to about 1,500 in the U.S., it's still rare. Less than 10% of couples with remaining frozen embryos put them up for adoption. It's one of few options for people with leftover embryos, including donating to science or to another couple anonymously, or simply discarding them. I think the idea of embryo adoption sounds like science fiction to people when we present it. And it's not just the general public, but even people who are pursuing fertility treatment haven't heard of embryo adoption. So there still needs to be awareness about the issue. But it goes a lot deeper than awareness. Dealing with embryos opens up an ethical minefield. And for many who now have leftover embryos, created with so much personal investment, the idea of watching their potential biological children raised by strangers is hard to grasp. 
That's because embryo adoptions are encouraged to be open. Are they going to be comfortable with receiving photos, having a visit once a year face-to-face, -face, having each other's phone numbers, having each other's email address, seeing that child on Facebook? Both families will have to have the same level of comfort in order for this to work. The fertility industry is expected to grow to $14 billion a year by 2020, with each round of IVF costing at least $10,000. And oftentimes more than one round is needed to get pregnant. Successful pregnancy still requires as many chances at bat as possible. So all the procedures are done here in this one clinic? Yes, this is where we uh, make the embryos inside the laboratory. Dr. Mark Kahn is a partner fertility doctor at CCRM Orange County. Inside the laboratory we take the sperm and the eggs and we mix them together and then we create the embryos and later if we need to freeze the embryos we do that here in the laboratory as well. This is the embryology uh, storage tank room so each one of these tanks have hundreds of embryos actually frozen inside the tanks. The embryos can stay frozen indefinitely. Typically, we send a note out to the patients every year to remind them that they have their frozen embryos and to ask what they want to do with them at that point in time. That's the question couples struggle to confront in the aftermath of successful IVF treatments. What to do with an abundance of maybe babies? There's this social disaster looming, which is that couples who created embryos will die and have embryos in storage, leaving their children with this decision of what to do about those embryos. There are an estimated one million frozen embryos in storage, including those earmarked for research and having more children later. But a growing number are left in storage year after year as couples put off making a decision. Not knowing what to do with the embryo can cause anxiety for many couples. Um, but at the same time, I think leaving the doors open that what science allowed patients to do, which is preserve their fertility for the future, um, that allows people to have options. It's, isn't it interesting how the medical technology can be both a blessing and a curse for us in some ways. And so we have to be very circumspect about how we think about these things in light of who we are as Christians and our identity and our this mandate that we have, if we are really saying, as I said at the beginning, that humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth, not based on their function, not based on their size, not based on their location, like we talked about last week. What do we do with this? This is my husband's immediate thought when he, uh, exclamation, when he saw the clip this morning, he's like, Whoa, I can't even imagine what's happened in the spirit realm with, with all of these embryos. You know, it's like, that's a, that's a crazy dilemma right there. So, um, and when they were alluding to some of the embryos are used in medical research, who knows what that means? Huh? Stem cell research. So what they will do, sometimes couples will donate their embryos to stem cell research and basically what they're doing is they're then taking that embryo and manipulating it to create certain types of stem cells and experimentation to work toward healing diseases. And, you know, this is, a, this is another ethical dilemma, is if we're taking the position that the embryo is a human person and then we're using that in a destructive way, in a manipulative way, 
to, to create something that will be then used for another human life, that is, a, that is an, its own uh, very thorny ethical issue. And uh, the ministry that I work for, we advocate for adult stem cell research, where adults can donate stem, stem cells from their body to be used for that research, but then we're not destroying a human life in order to do that research. And so we see it as, yes, relieving human suffering can be a good part of redemption. Yes, doing research to help alleviate suffering can be part of what we do as Christians. But we don't want to do it by destroying human life in the process. But sometimes this leads to a conversation in our culture where Christians are against progress. We're against science. So we have to be very clear. No, I'm not against science. I'm against destroying one human life for another human life. But stem cell research does have value and can be part of our work as redeeming agents in our world, but we just want to be careful how we're doing it so that it's consistent with the ethics that we have as Christians. Does that make sense? So again, this is something we don't talk a lot about in church. Um, I don't know why we don't talk about it because it affects many of us. And you know, it, maybe we ought to talk about it a little bit more. But um, these are very important, important questions. So uh, I got about 20 minutes left. We can just do sort of an open, ask me anything. Uh, you have some burning question, or if you have no questions, then we'll do a reverse AMA where I ask you questions. Well, that could be one of two things. Um, one is uh, genetic selection, which is on the rise, which is where you work toward um, selecting, uh, doing selection of embryos based on certain characteristics of, of the parents. And, and uh, that's a whole other emerging realm of genetics. But that could also be referring to the rise of what's called transhumanism, which is another... Um, sort of component in all of this conversation is what our culture is really wrestling with in some measures, what does it mean to be human? You know, and, and how can we improve ourselves? Transhumanism is really an outgrowth of evolutionary philosophy and science to try to explore the limits of our age and how to keep us alive longer um, through various means. There's... Uh, one of my colleagues at work is working on a book right now on the ethics and science of transhumanism because this is really on the rise. And this is an idea of how can we extend the human life longer? How can we evolve ourselves to the next level? And it's, it's really, my colleague, I thought this was pretty insightful. He says, really what this is, is going back to the Garden of Eden and trying to find the tree of life. It's, it's to try to make a human effort to get a supernatural result. And um, that you can do these very elaborate transplants. Um, and even there's one doctor in Italy that's getting really close to be able to doing head transplants. To be able to extend life. And this is a... 
this, I, when I first heard about this, I thought, what? This is crazy. Are you making this up? This is a legitimate type of science that's emerging. And it's really an, it's just a natural outgrowth of evolution of how do we improve ourselves and take ourselves to the next level. This is part of the stem cell research is how do I renew my organs? How do I renew my teeth? How do I renew these parts of my body that that degenerate over time? How do I rehabilitate them and make them young again? And I think this is all a quest for humanity to to extend our lives. Now, I've speculated in this class before, um, I think that part of God's grace to us is blocking access to the tree of life, whatever that supernatural tree was, because what would happen to evil if humans had the potential to, um, the unlimited potential to life? What would happen to evil? If, if Hitler never died, okay, so let's try on that idea for a second. You know, if, if people who are truly evil and practice evil behavior, we all know that evil in some sense has to come to an end. Everyone has to die, right? But if we can figure out ways to extend life by hundreds of years and we can extend body parts and we can, we can do this sort of thing, what is going to happen to evil? Do you, do you see the dilemma? <laughs> Potentially, depending on how developed this is. I mean, again, we're at the very beginning stages of this, but, but the fact that our culture is trying this on as an idea is interesting, right? And I think that all right, so here's a, a speculation. Um, I, I'm, not the, I'm not a prophet, not, nor am I the daughter of a prophet, but I, I can see a potential in the future that this culture that I've been talking about the last several months of a life-oriented culture, this starts to become the defining feature of what it means to be a Christian, that we order our lives in a certain way. Our, the Christian life looks like what I've been talking about. Whereas the naturalist, if you're not a believer, you don't believe in God, your life starts looking like something else. If you've ever seen the movie, any of you ever seen the movie from the 90s, uh, Gattaca? Go watch that movie. It's, it's called Gattaca. It was a, it's like a futuristic dystopian movie where in the future... Children are all sort of genetically programmed, but then there's this like subculture living within the larger culture where they have children based on love. They have like children the natural way. They don't have these genetically modified children. And I look at that and I think that to me is sort of a picture of what I envision for potentially what, how Christianity might be known in the future is that we are this subculture that values life and has children based on love and without genetic modification. And that because we believe that God has ordained life and God will bring life. And I can see the potential with this whole rise of transhumanism and these genetic modifications and and all of these things. The more that we think that we are in power and control of what life looks like, and we, we start separating that from the creator, it leads to some interesting life problems, life implications. Right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
And I'm, I'm not saying I would die for this. This is just me kind of playing these things out into the future as I see them. But when we talk about a distinctly Christian culture um, where life has intrinsic value, I think that these are meditations that we ought to think about is how do I live this out in my life? To to play God? And and that's where, yeah, I think that there's something in us that wants to explore those limits. And that's why I said I'm not against technology. I think that IVF has some potential. We just have to be circumspect in using these emergency emerging technologies in a way that's consistent with our ethic as Christians. And we haven't reflected deeply on that as evangelicals. I mean, I could go find you five ethicists who have reflected deeply on this. But I mean, as a church, we don't have these conversations. That's, that's what I mean. Uh, and, and so then we kind of just get in these superficial answers and, ooh, that's scary. And I'm like, well, all right, let's take a look at it. Let's think more about it. I don't want to be anti-science anti-stem cell research, but I want to do it in a way that is consistent with valuing life. Yes, Steve? That no matter how highly evolved a robot might get or get the programming, all that programming is, is still has its basis in what humans have put into that. And the mind and the intelligence of, of the human. You know, I, I, I know there's a lot of smart dogs in the world. My friend Marianne just got a Siberian Husky. She says, like, the thing is very smart. I'm pretty sure it can't do calculus. Um, I'm pretty sure it doesn't go to the art museum and reflect deeply on the beauty of the art. I'm pretty sure the dog doesn't reflect on the future um, and have worries and concerns about the future. You know, and this is the unique claim that we are making as Christians is that humans alone are created in the image of God. There's other many diverse and beautiful things that God has created. And we have the ability to create too. But I think that ability to create, if you will, is a direct result of being the image bearers of God. That we are his ambassadors. And this is part of um, subduing the earth and subduing and ruling the earth. And we talked way back in September that those were our jobs of what we're doing. And so, again, I'm not against technology. I'm not against exploring the limits of what we can do as humans, you know, going to the moon or trying to relieve suffering through stem cell research. I think those are all very worthy goals. But we as Christians need to be talking to our children about these issues because if they have, they go into careers, I mean, imagine how stem cell research could be shaped if the leaders in that conversation were Christians and had grown up in a home where maybe the parents had actually talked about these things. And I want you to imagine, like I'm telling you today, that I, I have set a goal this year that I'm going to climb Mount Everest. That's my goal for the year. I'm going to climb Mount Everest. And I have a training program. So you want to hear about my training program to get ready for Mount Everest because I'm still a little overweight. That's okay. I got some roller skates my mother saved for me from my childhood, so I'm going to work out my legs with the roller skates. I, 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 uh, I've been, like, limited to two-pound weights. I'm living on the edge. I went and bought some five-pound weights. All right? 
I'm gonna, so I got my five pound weights, I got my roller skates. I'm gonna do some push-ups. I got a nice new mat that I can put on the floor. I can do my push-ups every day. I'm gonna do some leg squats. And maybe I'll just work in a little bit of running to help, help develop my lungs a little bit. So my goal this year is to climb Mount Everest. Do you think that exercise program is gonna get me to Mount Everest? No, that's a bunch of wishful thinking, right? But this is how, uh, how we oftentimes think about how we talk to our young people. Is like, I'm going to send you out into this really difficult and hostile world. You're going to climb Mount Everest. But then we give them some roller skates and some two-pound dumbbells. We tell them, like, yeah, pray, read your Bible, have some devotions, and that's it. We don't have conversations with them about the actual thorny questions that our culture is asking. This is the, the difficulty that we're in. And I, I really think that, that God has created some young people with some pretty amazing abilities. And, but we've got to have some conversations about, like, here's a Christian perspective on this. Here's how to think about this. From a, from a Christian worldview so that they're really trained. So we're not just saying, you're going to ascend Mount Everest and here's some roller skates. Have fun. You know? <laughs> That's not a hot idea. But we need, we need young people to be in stem cell research. We need young people to be exploring technology, to be NASA scientists, to, to be involved in the ethical conversations that our, our culture is really asking these hard questions. And rather than being afraid of it, how are we going to equip people? All right, let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you that you have made us curious beings. Our ability to ask questions is a reflection of the reality that we were created in your image. Our ability to think and to reason is a reflection that we are created in your image. And that we have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. And we thank you for that. And help us to reflect on how we can be an advocate and a voice for the voiceless, a voice for the defenseless. And that we can talk to people about these, these things that we're learning. That these aren't just esoteric things. These are real questions that our culture is asking. And how can we, as your people, be a stand for life? How can we value the lives around us and all of various ways, not just the unborn, but not excluding the unborn. Help us to think about and ponder uh, what you have for each of us with our 8 to 15 as we find ourselves in these conversations. How can we be a stand for life? In Jesus' name, amen.